Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, welcome Dr. Ephraim Sarah Schreier to the show. Sarah Schreier is an associate professor in English studies. He teaches the history and culture of the English-speaking world at the University of Copenhagen. His research also interweaves the occult and sciences. His book is titled Psychic Investigators, Anthropology, Modern Spiritualism, and credible witnessing in the late Victorian age. In it, he examines British anthropology and modern spiritualist movements during the late Victorian era. Research from his PhD at Leeds formed the basis of his first book, The Making of British Anthropology, 1813 to 1871, which was published in 2013. Can you give your audience a breakdown of your current assignments, institutes, and projects that you're working on and how it relates to your experience and research? Well, thanks very much, Nathan, for the kind introduction. And also, I applaud you for being one of the few people who got the pronunciation of my last name correctly on the first go. Um, In terms of my research, I'm broadly uh, a historical anthropologist who works at the intersection of history and anthropology. And so all of the research that I undertake focuses on, on how anthropologists can engage the past, but also how anthropologists in the past have practiced their discipline. And Psychic Investigators is a project where I really took seriously uh, how Victorian anthropologists engage the topic of the, uh, the occult and specifically spiritualism in the latter part of the Victorian era and into the 20th century. Uh, since then, I've continued to uh, work on uh, topics relating to the relationship between occultism and science. Most recently, I've been looking at uh, some very famous cases connected to spirit photography in the early part of the 20th century, including um, one led by Harry Price, who is widely seen as one of the most famous psychical researchers of the 20th century. And in 1922, he supposedly exposed this psychic photographer named William Hope is a fraud. So I follow in detail that story and all the different players that are involved in it. In terms of my role at uh, the University of Copenhagen, in January of 2023, I'm about to launch a new research group at my department in English studies, where we're going to study both through literary studies, but also cultural studies and history, um, uh, occultism, horror, and gothic topics. So I'm really excited about that new project and the ways in which we can uh, collaborate with people all over Europe and North America, and as well as my colleagues that I'm already working with in places like Japan as well on topics relating to gothic horror and cult. In your blog, The Historical Ghostbuster, how has that been going for you? One of your newest posts is titled Spiritualism and the Birth of Radio. I really enjoyed doing my blog. I started it about a year ago when I launched a new uh, personal website. And in uh, pretty much every month, I, I write a short piece. They're not designed 
specifically for academic audiences, but for broader audiences. And I explore different vignettes related to the history of occultism, and magic, and horror, and gothic. Recently, as you say, I did that one on the relationship between uh, transformations and radio technology in the early 20th century and occult practitioners. And what I talk about in that particular blog is the way in which a lot of early um, progenitors and, and, and inventors within uh, radio technology also happen to be spiritualists, like Oliver Lodge is an example. And for many spiritualists at the time, radios were seen as another tool for engaging the, 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 the potential of, of spirits living beyond the veil, that it could enhance the way in which they can speak with the world around them. And so that's one of the topics that I've recently explored. And more recently, I've just uh, done a blog on Pepper's Ghost, which is one of the most incredible illusions uh, by, by a magician in the 19th century, where essentially it projects from a hidden room an actor, and it projects a sort of um, uh, 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 an image of them onto the stage that, of course, is transparent but can move. So it simulates a ghost. And it absolutely wowed audiences in the 19th century. And it's still used today as it happens. For example, you can see, you can see uh, its use in the ride, um, The Haunted Mansion at Disney World. In that famous scene where, you're, where you pass the ballroom and the ghosts are dancing, well, the effect to create those translucent dancing ghosts is actually the Pepper's Ghost Illusion that originates in the 19th century. So I explore these types of topics in my blog. And some of them have been really well read. Others have been a little less successful, but I'm having a lot of fun doing it. Why set your book in the late Victorian age? And can you explain exactly what your time span is for the audience? The book is primarily set in the late Victorian period, which, you know, roughly runs from the 1870s into, uh, into around the, the start of the First World War. Um, give or take a few years at each end. And the reason for that is that this was the period where spiritualism is at its height, when there are so many people engaged in, in activities like seances. And a lot of the most famous investigations into spiritualism take place, especially among, uh, among anthropologists at the time. And one of the reasons for why it's such a big deal for anthropologists is because a belief in ghosts really cuts to one of the core theories within this emerging discipline of animism. And so I explore the relationship between animistic theory, and animistic theory is one that was originally created by, well, not created, it was, uh, it was uh, originally articulated by Edward Burnett Tyler in his magnum opus, uh, Primitive Culture in 1871, where he explains an evolutionary uh, theory to account for how cultures transform and specifically belief and how beliefs start with this sort of what he would call primitive beliefs in spirits animating the world. And then from that, again, in his words, primitive beliefs, we slowly progress towards more uh, uh, complex religions like Christianity and ultimately arrive at a sort of uh, culture dominated by naturalistic, um, uh, not naturalistic thought, like, like the sciences at the time, the Victorian period. But of course, that idea then means that these so-called primitive people 
fundamentally their beliefs are connected to superstition. But when spiritualism comes about and people are saying, well, actually, this isn't a superstition, but, you know, people observing real phenomena. If that's true, then the idea of animism and the roots of culture, which he sees as animism, falls apart. So he has to engage this issue. And he does so by going into the field and engaging uh, mediums firsthand to see whether there's any merit to the claims of the phenomena people are writing about in journals at the time and books, etc. Are you relating the psychic energies of people with technology? And how so? Um, what is psychical research and how did it come about? The psychical research emerges in the later part of the 19th century when people begin to take seriously investigations into the legitimacy of these extraordinary phenomena. And there's a group of figures in the sort of 1880s who, through a series of discussions and events that they hold together, form what becomes the Society for Psychical Research. And it's the first formalized body to pursue studies into whether or not these phenomena are real. So it has its roots in the scientific naturalism of the 19th century, and it's connected not just to skeptics, but believers as well, although there is some fraction that happens within the society, and, uh, and, and that leads to the separation of some members who are more uh, devout believers than some of the more hardline disbelievers that are part of the group as well. But that's sort of how it emerges is within this context of scientific nationalism of the 19th century. In terms of its relationship to technology, that's something that connects much more to a more recent project that I co-led with Christine Ferguson, who's a professor at the University of Strathclyde in Scotland, where we looked at the history of occultism and, and media technology at the turn of the 20th century. Because it just so happens that occultic practitioners are early adopters of these new technologies. Because these new technologies are fundamentally about enhancing the way in which you can communicate with people, they believe that they can take this technology and enhance the way that they can communicate with spirits. So things like telephones and radios and telegraphs are all adopted by spiritualists and brought into seances, brought into mediumistic practice. And so I explore that with Christine in this new project, which is called the Media of Mediumship. And it was a collaboration between us and also the Science Museum in London, where we used a lot of the objects, media objects from the period, as well as Senate House Library that has a wonderful archive connected to occultism. What about botany? Is botany a significant part of your findings? And if so, how does it compare to the other disciplines of anthropology? that you researched? Botany isn't really part of this, but there are other disciplines that are deeply connected to my study. So for example, the, so, the, the, the social sciences or human sciences are not really separated yet in the 19th century. So a lot of the sorts of discussions that eventually become part of sociology and psychology are also part of anthropology at the time. And so questions about the human mind dominate a lot of anthropological discussions at the time. And therefore, it required me to engage a lot of early psychology as well as anthropology. Physics is also really important because a lot of these early investigators 
who are important sources of evidence for anthropologists just so happen to be physicists as well. And again, there's the logic to it is that these, these phenomena that are being produced in the seance room, a lot of which are sort of invisible energies, seems like something that fits within the domain of physics in the period. And that's why physicists see themselves as potentially experts in observing and making sense of this extraordinary occurrences that they're witnessing. So I'm engaging physics, I'm engaging psychology, and through that, I really understand the way in which these investigators' practices function in the period. And are you situating your work in an academic debate? You mentioned figures such as George Stocking, Roger Luckhorst, Logie Barrow, and Alex Owen, among others. How are you situating your work within these other debates of research? One of the fundamental questions that I ask in the book is what makes someone a credible witness of extraordinary phenomena like spirit and psychic forces? And to explore this question, I engage a concept that was actually coined by a historian of psychology named Peter Lamont called the crisis of evidence. And it's the idea that the biggest thing, the biggest challenge in, in investigations related to spirit and psychic forces is whether or not there's sufficient evidence to support either side, whether you're a believer or disbeliever. And what I've done in my book is I look at the ways in which four figures, E.B. Tyler, Edward Claude, Andrew Lang, and Alfred Russell Wallace, construct their arguments depending on their position for or against or somewhere in, the, in between in some cases by looking at not just their own observations, but the observations of other and through this analysis of their own evidence, really get at this question of what's credible and not credible, and the socio-political politics that you use to argue for the credibility of your evidence as well. So it's very much interested in these questions of evidence in the history of science. Now, stalking, of course, comes into this, because stalking is is very much the person who, who, who helped to define the study of Victorian anthropology within the discipline of history of science. And he sort of signposted the idea that there's an important story to explore here in terms of the relationship between Victorian anthropology and spiritualism. He doesn't really get into too much of it. He looks at it a bit through Edward Burnett Tyler, but it, it isn't a particularly exhaustive study. And so to a certain degree, I've, I've listened to what he said and, and from there gone much broader into the topic. So, there's, so I'm drawing on sort of some of the questions that he opened up, but, but again, advancing them much further. And in terms of the literature on spirit, Victorian spiritualism, well, there's all sorts of stuff. And I, I talk in detail about the ways in which my book connects to all of the ways in which Victorian spiritualism has been studied. Um, but fundamentally, it's, for me, it's about this question of evidence and, and, and what counts as trustworthy. You mentioned physics. What about psychology? And also, what discipline would you see yourself studying if you were not a historian or an anthropologist? I've sort of spoken already to sort of psychology and physics. Now, if I wasn't a historian, and I wasn't a, uh, uh, an anthropologist as well, I would almost certainly have gone uh, towards law. And I actually, when I first started working 
as a historian during my graduate studies, I was very attracted to legal history. And to a certain extent, legal history also deals with questions of evidence and what counts as a trustworthy observation or a trustworthy testimony. I find that very, very interesting. And I think law would be another way for me to sort of explore those questions. And of course, I, I would nearly actually did an LSAT uh, test so that I can study law as well, but decided last minute that an academic career was more for me. But I think law would be my choice. And what about the claim of psychical research being associated with pseudoscience? Do you agree with that statement? So there's a long history where psychical research has been derided, uh, especially by uh, more elite scientific figures. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. But really what historians like Richard Noakes and his wonderful new book, uh, Physics and Psychics, as well as my book, Psychic Investigators, what we both tried to, to show is how important this research was uh, for more mainstream disciplines like anthropology or in his case, physics, because a lot of the research that figures within these disciplines were doing to determine whether or not there's any credibility to claims about psychics and spirits help them to strengthen their own larger practices and theories within their discipline. So it was important to them. I mean, in the case of, uh, of someone like E.B. Tyler, who's traditionally seen as this armchair theorist, well, in the 19th century, at the height of the so-called armchair period, he's so interested in testing the claims of these spiritualists that he leaves the armchair and goes out into the field and attends seances and participates in spiritualist performances and gets firsthand knowledge of it, where we really see almost a form of participant observation well before people like Bronislav Malinowski or Margaret Bede in the early 20th century. And so it really was an important issue for these figures. It wasn't some sort of, sort of footnote to the discipline. And I think that to me shows that it isn't a pseudoscience, but actually it really helped to define modern science at a broad level and each discipline engaged in various ways. What about micro-studies? How is that important for you? So in my book, I talk about the importance of micro-history and micro-studies. Um, and one of the things that I try to emphasize is that micro-history is a really important way to reconstruct historical practice in particular. And so too is micro-studies if you're building on the works of, of you know, theorists like Geertz, in the 20th century, and his famous book, The Interpretation of Culture. Both of these approaches are really about getting into the fine details of things. And it allows you to understand, this, you know, in the past, how people practice their, their, their discipline. And so through a microhistorical approach, I get into the details of how figures like Andrew Lang and E.B. Tyler went about investigating uh, psychics and spirits firsthand. And it it provides a glimpse into the past that you don't really get with these sort of larger survey topics, which have their own value, of course. But just to use the sort of uh, metaphor of what you see with a telescope is different than what you see with a microscope. I think that's the way we have to think about microhistorical studies, that you're seeing something very different. And when you put the two together, you see a much fuller picture of the past. And 
The four figures that you focus on, what are their beliefs and what are their stances on spiritualism and why did you choose them as the centerpiece of your work? So going back to that point that I was making earlier about animism, in the later part of the 19th century within the British tradition of anthropology, the core intellectual theory of anthropology is animism, this idea that primitive cultures, again, using the terminology of the 19th century, had this rudimentary belief in spirits animating the world. And from that belief, all other beliefs emerge. And you can trace its development all the way towards uh, more complex religions, again, using the terminology of the 19th century, like Christianity. Now, the figures that I use are all engaging with anthropological questions about beliefs. Wallace, Tyler, Lang, and Claude. They're all part of the animist school of thought in the 19th century. And yet, despite all being part of this same school of thought, they all have different stances when it comes to spiritualism. Wallace, as an example, is a believer in, in the spirit hypothesis, the idea that spirits uh, living beyond, the, residing rather beyond the veil can intercommunicate with the living. Tyler is more of an open-minded skeptic, whereas Lang isn't so much a, a believer in spiritualism, but he's a proponent of telepathy. So it isn't spirits that are communicating, but it's this sort of invisible force that can be controlled by the medium. So it's human in origin, not spirit in origin. And then Claude, of course, is this hardline disbeliever, whereas Someone who's a skeptic is open to the possibility of being shown otherwise. Didn't matter what evidence you put before someone like Claude, he would still argue that it does not prove the existence of spirit and psychic forces. So they're all animists and they all represent a different stance in relation to spiritualism. And they're all important figures in 19th century um, anthropology within the British context. Did you do any field work on Welsh farmers, for example, or was there a lot of secondary sources for you? So I obviously, in the book, I talk about Alfred Russell Wallace's early experiences in the field with Welsh farmers, where he's examining some of the folkloric practices, some of which have occultic dimensions to them. Now, I didn't undertake any uh, field work doing that. But I have done field work in relation to the history of spiritualism uh, for other projects where I've worked with mediums and I've participated in seances so that I can really come to understand the culture of spiritualism, the practices of spiritualists, and really understand their beliefs on their own terms. And that was really helpful for understanding the history of the movement and why so many people believed in the existence of spirits and psychics. I've also worked with magicians who are sort of on the other side, sort of the people who expose spiritualists who are fraudsters or mediums who are fake. And one of the things that we did together was we recreated some of the types of effects that people would have seen in the seance room using illusion and misdirection, etc. And that, too, is really useful for understanding the other side of the debate and talking to magicians who, you know, since since the 19th century, have very much been about trying to expose people for being frauds and pretending to be mediums and psychics. 
So I've worked with both groups, essentially. And was the spiritualist movement exported or brought in, so to speak, from other countries? What about indigeneity, since you focus so much on the European continent? The modern spiritualism, as we've been discussing it thus far, is traditionally connected to the Fox sisters, who were from uh, Hydesville, New York, just outside of Rochester. And it was from there that the spiritualist movement with the types of seances that you typically think of emerges, and it eventually goes over to Europe in the 1850s, just a few years after the Fox sisters uh, supposedly started in March of, of 1848. Now, that being said, there's sort of a version of, of psychism or, or, or spiritualism in most cultures. And this is something that anthropologists of the 19th century were already very aware of. But when we look at it now, you wouldn't really frame it as modern spiritualism because that's a very westernized concept. And it doesn't really fit and map neatly onto all cultures in the same way. It really depends on the belief systems that you're talking about. But there are ways in which modern spiritualism was then, it was then uh, uh, adopted by cultures outside of Europe and North America. So for instance, the end of the 19th century, we see a lot of interest in places like Japan in spiritualism. And the practices of mediumship in the westernized sense is adopted by this growing spiritualist community over there. So we do see it in other places uh, in ways where it's, it's, as you would say, important culturally to them, as opposed to being part of the, uh, the traditional culture. Because, of course, in Japan, you have Shintoism, and Shintoism already has this belief in spirits animating the world. So it's not that much of a stretch to already believe that your ancestors' spirits are animating the world to then moving towards the spiritualist concept of that hypothesis where they can intercommunicate with you. Because there's already something similar in Japanese culture that was independent from what happened with the Fox sisters. What was Wallace's spiritual framework if, we, if we're following up your line of logic? Well, Wallace argued in his work that the spirit hypothesis, again, the idea that spirits of the dead can intercommunicate with the living, he believed this was true. And he looked at thousands and thousands of records from periodicals and books, historical records as well. He did his own investigations of mediums himself, attending seances, and he eventually arrives at this idea of of this theory, which he calls progression of the fittest, which fits into his already existing views on evolutionary theory. Because of course, he helps co-discover evolution by natural selection with Charles Darwin. So he's already an evolutionary thinker prior to his engagement with spiritualism. But what he does when he tries to merge these two things together is argue that in life, humans are, you know, uh, connected to natural selection. But on death, this new mechanism takes over called progression of the fittest. And it's really about the moral education of the spirit that will gain more lessons even after death. And the more lessons it, it gains, the closer towards enlightenment it can achieve. So he has this 
new evolutionary mechanism applied to the spirit world, which again connects to his already uh, existing ideas in relation to evolution in the natural world. So it's all part of his naturalistic thinking of the time. And Owenism, it was deistic versus spiritualistic? Or deism, what, what is deism and is it the same as spiritualism? It's not the same as spiritualism, although Owen himself becomes a proponent of spiritualism later in his life. One of the things that Owen himself was interested in was, was sort of kicking back against traditional organized religions and to, and, to, uh, and, and, and to open up the idea that people should explore these other forms of belief. And spiritualism being a very communal-based practice appealed to his sensibilities. Because, of course, one of the things that he's trying to, 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 to uh, propose to people is the advantages of that sort of socialistic communal lifestyle uh, where you work together towards a common end. And so the idea of spiritualism and the communal practices of seances very much fit with those types of ideas. And he becomes a spiritualist. And it just so happens that Wallace, who becomes a huge proponent of spiritualism, is also very much interested in Owenism and those ideas. So again, we see Owenism and spiritualism working together in his writings as well. So it's, it's not necessarily deistic, although some scholars of Owen would say he was a deist, uh, but you can see the relationship in terms of how Owen eventually gravitates towards spiritualism. And Tyler's fact-based argument, what was it? Fundamentally, and this goes back to that point I was making about this, 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 uh, the importance of evidence in these types of, of researches. You could, you could give him a thousand secondhand accounts that all allege that, that spirit and psychic forces are real. But if he doesn't see it directly himself, then it really is a matter of hearsay. And so he prioritizes direct firsthand experience over all other types of evidence. And that's one of the reasons for why he decides to leave his home and go to London and spend time attending and participating in spiritualist performances, because he believes that through his own senses and his own direct experience, he can get the evidence necessary to finally resolve this question of whether or not spirit and psychic forces are real. And do you agree with Tyler's critique of animism? Well, he's not critiquing animism because he's sort of a progenitor of the theory. But what I will say is that as a historian, I'm not particularly interested on arguing whether a theory of a historical actor is good or bad, but I'm instead more interested in understanding how they arrived at those ideas and their own views on it in terms of its relation to what other actors, historical actors are saying at the time. So I'm much more interested in understanding it on their terms than my own terms. If we're thinking about an evolution of religion, does it agree or disagree with Darwin's theory of evolution? Or is there some overlap between the theories of evolution that were posited by some of these um, intellectuals? Animism and, the, and, and evolutionary theories in relation to religion emerge in the same period as theories like Darwinism, as an example. It's the period of evolutionism. There's all sorts of ways in which 
versions of evolutionary thought are applied to all kinds of topics. Now, interestingly, in the case of, of Tyler and anthropology, when he first proposes his this evolutionary theory of religion, which is essentially animism, in uh, its formal state for primitive culture, his book from 1871. There are almost, no, in fact, there are zero references to either the writings of Charles Darwin or Herbert Spencer, who are sort of two biggest evolutionary thinkers of, of Victorian Britain at the time. And it isn't until the second edition where Tyler actually says that he actually came to these views without having read either the origin of species, that Descent of Man hadn't come out yet, and he hadn't read any of Spencer's work either, like the First Principles uh, or, or, the, uh, or his, his work on the unknowable. And so it's, it, it's sort of more a product of larger societal preoccupations with developmental models than specifically influenced by the writings of people like Darwin. So it's a very interesting thing when we look at this evolutionary period of the 19th century, and suddenly all roads don't necessarily lead to Darwin. And that Darwin, when, when you don't see him as sort of the focal point, doesn't actually stand out in the same way once you see all these other evolutionary thinkers as well, who sometimes engage him, sometimes they don't engage him, sometimes they precede him as well. And I think that's very interesting and important in its own right. In your research, was the psychic phenomena or spiritual encounters more scientific than not? And do you have any evidence that can refute the skeptics? And also, how were skeptics being refuted, if at all? So anyone who was a, a scientific figure in the 19th century investigating spiritualism were certainly approaching the topic as a science. And psychical research itself is very much positioning itself as the scientific study of these extraordinary phenomena. In terms of the issue of how did believers try to strengthen their arguments and discredit those of skeptics, it's not too dissimilar to what the skeptics themselves are saying. And it all comes down to how one interprets the evidence put before them. And just as people who are skeptical are saying that X person's testimony is unreliable, or X person's evidence is unreliable, so too are believers saying similar things. One of the arguments, for example, could be that they didn't spend enough time on the subject to really immerse themselves and be experts in it. So why should this, this skeptic, who may have only attended one or two uh, seances, as an example, have more credibility than a person who was a believer who had, for instance, sat on you know, a few dozen uh, seances. So it's all about, again, the standards of evidence and what makes one piece of evidence more credible than the other. And it really is almost a legal argument in terms of thinking about these investigators almost like lawyers and the evidence that they're putting before you, the judge and jury, to determine whether or not they're making a compelling in this case that that spirit and psychic forces are either real or not real. Who are the major publishers of psychic investigations and writings during the period in which you're writing about? It's important to say that in the later part of the 19th century and into the early 20th century, topics like spiritualism is huge. It's one of the most mainstream forms of entertainment, and you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who didn't engage in spiritualism in this period. 
it's omnipresent. And therefore, publications relating to the topic are widespread, from big publishers like Macmillan or Murray, as an example, to smaller ones who don't exist anymore. And there was also a proliferation of periodicals completely devoted to spiritualist topics as well. Some of them published by spiritualist believers and others by skeptics. Some of them are really famous, like Light, which is still a periodical in operation, I believe, to this day. And other ones had shorter careers, like The Medium and Daybreak, but at the time were a main source of information about what was happening within the movement. What about Andrew Lang? He was a psycho-folklorist. Um, what was his anthropological method? One of the things that Lang wants to do, and this is how this, this term psychofolklorist, which is a term that's applied to him in the 19th century, what he's trying to do is he's using folkloric studies to engage the topic of, of psychics and, and spirits. And he's studying all sorts of stories in relation to ghosts and apparitions and spirits and hauntings, both historically and in other parts of the world. And through the study of these folklore practices, of these folk tales, he tries to build a history of spiritualism. And it's all part of the way in which he's trying to do an anthropological study animistically of, the, of this topic. And so he wants to understand belief, especially extraordinary belief, cross-culturally and cross-historically. It's really interesting. And again, folklore is one of the chief sources from where he's drawing his evidence. And what about this Cock Lane ghost? What is your favorite story that you want to highlight about this Cock Lane ghost and also ghosts just in Britain's history? The Cock Lane ghost is one of the most famous ghosts in, in modern British history. It was widely discussed in the periodical press. And then it comes back into discussions later with, with, again, the emergence of the modern spiritualist movement in the later part of the 19th century. It all begins in the sort of 1760s when uh, a gentleman named Kent moves with his, uh, with his uh, the, well, not his wife, but actually the sister of his deceased wife to London. Uh, they couldn't marry themselves because of canon law, because, again, he was married to uh, uh, his his partner's sister beforehand. Uh, so he moves with his, his girlfriend to London. Her name's Fanny. And they get this apartment on Cock Lane. And he has to go away to a wedding at some point. So uh, Fanny asks uh, the landlord's daughter if she'll stay with her while he's away because she's pregnant. Uh, and, and that's when they start hearing in the middle of the night the strange scratching noise in the apartment. And it totally freaks her out. She decides that there's something not right about it. So they move away from this apartment. And the story should have ended then, but it didn't. Because Fanny ends up passing away from smallpox. And the scratching noises that she had heard with the landlord's daughter, Elizabeth Parsons, that was her name, uh, come back to the apartment on, on Cock Lane. And it soon gets blown out of proportion that there's this spirit haunting the apartment. And through some seances that are held, uh, they learn, the landlord apparently learns through the seance that the spirit is none other than that 
of Fanny, who, of course, was at the apartment the first time when those scratching noises were heard. So there's already inconsistency in the story there. And the ghost gets named Scratching Fanny. And eventually, through various investigations, they find out that, in fact, the noises, the scratching noises that they're heard are actually being produced by Elizabeth Parsons with this little wooden board that she has concealed in her clothing. And it's a big story. It's in the press. And, and it's, it's, it's seen as this momentous case that shows that this idea of spirits uh, animating the world is false. It's, there's nothing to it. And that through careful investigation, you could expose how it's being done. And, and that's how the story gets told again and again. But then when Lane gets to it, uh, in the later part of the 19th century, reconstructs it in his book, which is called Cock Lane and Common Sense. He argues that the whole investigation led at the time by Samuel Johnson was, it shouldn't count because they, they went out of their way to sort of harass Elizabeth Parson to the point where she had no choice but to fake noises because when they tried to hold tests to see if she could, if to see if those scratching noises would happen in other contexts, not the, the, the apartment on Cock Lane, but actually in one of the homes of an Anglican bishop at the time. Uh, they weren't produced, and then they threatened her, and then she eventually cheats. And so he says, well, because she was put under you know, severe duress, that's what forced her, that pressed her to do this, this cheating. Um, but in actuality, that, that doesn't disprove what was happening. And he thinks that she's a psychic, that she wasn't recognized as a psychic. Uh, but had she had a more amicable environment to demonstrate her powers, she probably would have been able to do it for uh, Samuel Johnson and not cheated. So he tries to retell the story. But then Claude, of course, picks it up a little later in his own work, The Question, where he, where he basically says all spiritualism is nonsense. And he says, well, actually, Samuel Johnson did get it correct. And this reinterpretation by Lang is just wrong. He's purposely misinterpreting the evidence again to make you think that it's a case of genuine telepathy. Is there a movie that strikes your int interest when it comes to psychic investigations like Poltergeist or The Haunted Mansion? A new Haunted Mansion movie is supposedly coming in 2023. I like most things that have a connection to occultism or spiritualism gothic or horror topics. Uh, but for me, one of the movies that really had an imprint on me from a very young age was the original Ghostbuster movie. I still vividly remember that opening scene where they go into this, the Central Library in New York, and they see the spirit, and they also collect uh, samples of ectoplasm. That really stuck with me as a child. And again, I think it really spurred on my interest in these topics once I entered into university and then postgraduate studies and then my career as an academic. And a lot of those topics that they sort of address in the movie, I've also come across now in my study of spiritualism and occultism, especially once we get into the 20th century, where physical manifestations of spirits becomes much more prominent. And we start to see the heyday of psychics producing things like ectoplasm, which is nothing like how it's depicted in Ghostbusters. <clears throat> Board games such as the Uji board, is it the same or different, would you say, an Uji board from table turning? 
So the Ouija board's really connected to an older form of spiritualistic practice where you use a planchette in order to communicate with spirits where the spirits sort of guide your hand towards letters or on some boards you have sort of a Y for yes and an N for no and you answer yes, no question. That's a, that's a practice that's existed for a long time when it comes to attempts to communicate with the spirit world. And uh, it was discredited in the 19th century by a famous uh, natural philosopher named Michael Faraday. He's also a chemist who showed through a bunch of tests that he devised that the reason for why uh, these communications were possible was because of unconscious muscular uh, motion. All it takes is one person to slightly uh, shift that planchette towards something for the whole table's hands to be guided in a direction without them even being aware of what they're doing. And so he shows this through his, his series of tests. And it's one of the ways in which skeptics continue to try and dismiss that form of communication with spirits throughout the 19th century, straight to today when people continue to use it with board games like the Ouija. Why was Edward Claude a disbeliever? Well, the simple answer is, is he's a hard-lying rationalist. He starts life uh, in a small village uh, not too far from Cambridge in the United Kingdom. His father was a brig captain. He was training originally to be uh, a priest himself. But then he goes to London with his mother to see the Great Exhibition, which is one of the biggest sort of World Fair type exhibitions of the 19th century, and suddenly sees this world beyond the small village that he had been accustomed to his entire life and becomes deeply interested in, in learning more, especially about things like science. And he gets a job in London, he stays there and works his way up quite high into, um, in, into a bank job. Uh, and, and he becomes a member of a lot of different philosophical and scientific societies. And he slowly loses his faith and becomes agnostic, and then later atheistic. And so the idea of spiritualism really doesn't resonate with him because of his own loss of faith. And he just sees it as nothing more than silly superstition and misperception. And he sees it as damaging for society. And his book, The Question, is really an attempt to tell people that spiritualism is nonsense, you shouldn't believe it, and here's a robust case as to why you shouldn't believe that. And he uses lots of different examples. He uses lots of different testimonies and, and, and pieces of evidence to show how many times supposed cases of spiritualism and psychism have been exposed as nothing more than fraud. And it's all linked to his rationalism and loss of faith. Is there a Harry Houdini figure in your book Aside from Houdini himself, your epilogue talks about Harry Houdini. What did Houdini do essentially for psychical research? In terms of figures like Harry Houdini, and I'll interpret it as other types of magicians, not musicians, magicians rather, who engaged uh, spiritualism in the 19th century. One of the big examples of someone, John Neville Maskelyne, he's probably one of the most famous magicians 
of the 19th century. And he's, he's an incredible figure. And one of the things that he liked to do was to attend spiritualist performances, watch how they were done. And then he would go back and figure out how to recreate them through illusion. And then he performed them. And he was so good at recreating these performances through illusion that spiritualists who would go to his shows thought he actually was a spiritualist, that it wasn't fake, but that he just wasn't willing to, uh, you know, recognize his own media, in, in, his own mediumistic talents. Um, so there's there's figures like that, for instance, who I talk about. In terms of Houdini, Houdini is a fabulously interesting character, and really he was one of the biggest authorities on the topic of spiritualism as well. Now a lot of people assume that Houdini was this hardline disbeliever. But in fact, he was a very much an open-minded skeptic. He really wanted spiritualism to be real. And one of the reasons for why he wanted to be real was because he desperately wanted to have conversations with his deceased mother. He was very close to her in life, and when she died, he was devastated. And so the idea that spiritualism might be a way for him to continue to communicate with her was important enough that he devoted so much of his later life to try and figure out whether or not it was real. The problem was, is that he was such a talented magician and a, a, you know, a wonderful illusionist that he could detect when he went to see these different psychics, how they were faking their, their manifestations or the communications that they were receiving. And so time and time again, he ends up exposing them, even though he really didn't want to expose and that wasn't his goal when he went there he wanted to see whether or not he could communicate with his mother but of course he didn't stand for people who were trying to take advantage of others uh, he himself had started out as a a fake medium to uh, do a show where he was this mystic and he realized quite early on that it was a pretty exploitative practice because he was making money off of people's grief and so he went so far by the end of his career to even uh hire a group of people to work with them, who he called his secret service. And he would actually send these people out to different cities before he would go there on his own tours to do his own shows, to attend local seances, to meet different supposed psychics and collect evidence for him. And then he would use that to later expose them at his own show, if in fact they could determine that, this, that the psychic that they had just seen was, was a phony. So he was really invested in showing who was real and who wasn't. Of course, no one, so far as Houdini was concerned, ever proved to be real. But he still hoped that he would find someone that was a real, genuine psychic. In the years after the late Victorian age, did psychical research keep going or was it displanted by other fields? I mean, it still exists today. You still have the Society for Psychical Research in England as an example. You also have one in New York as well. The Society for Psychical Research in the United States still exists in Boston. Um, but of course, the sort of industry of paranormal investigation is a huge industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. And you've got books and podcasts and radio shows, and TV shows and movies. So it hasn't going anywhere. Whereas the sort of way in which elite scientific figures were involved in the 19th century, well, that's changed. But in terms of the popular engagement with the topic, it still remains very strong in the public eye. 
and I don't think it's it's going to disappear. There, there's a you know people are are very much attracted to this topic, and uh, it's a strong industry for a reason. So it's part of our culture. It's always been a part of our culture. This idea of extraordinary occurrences, um, and and the study of it in the 19th century really helps us to understand the legacies even today of the types of things that were being done back then. We still, for example, have people who are uh, psychic photographers who do a type of photography not too dissimilar to what people were doing all the way back in the in, in the middle of the 19th century. I actually uh, regularly uh, uh, work with a, a, a spirit photographer who uh, has been taking pictures of seances uh, in Lilydale, New York, which is sort of the, the mecca of the modern spiritualist movement in the United States. Uh, for the past 20 years, she's been doing this work. And uh, I've learned a lot by talking to her as a current practitioner of spirit photography. Uh, and, and also it allows me to understand the historical practice even more by engaging with uh, people who are still doing it. If you had a psychical power, real or imaginary, what would it be? For me, I like levitation or telepathy. Well, one of my favorite um, my favorite forms of uh, physical manifestations is this thing called spirit apport. Uh, there's this uh, medium in the 19th century named Agnes Elizabeth Guppy. She was famous for allegedly having the ability to uh, transport objects into locked seance rooms through spirits carrying it in. It was so incredible that even on one occasion, she herself was carried, supposedly carried, three miles across London into a locked seance room and dropped down on the table, much to the surprise of all the sitters. That's pretty incredible. It would be pretty cool if you could just magically bring objects into sealed rooms. And how how can your audience interact with you in person or online? Online, uh, they can, of course, visit my website, which is fcirashryer.com, and they can see my historical Ghostbuster blog. I also regularly do podcast interviews. I just did one recently with Dallas Campbell, the BBC presenter for his new series, Patented, which is part of History Hits channel. Uh, I also do lots of live talks as well, both online and in person. So it's very easy to stay connected if you follow me on Twitter, uh, because I, I, t- I always announce the various things that I'm up to. Final thoughts for the New Books Network audience? <laughs> I don't know if I have any beyond just thanking you for uh, taking the time to speak with me about my research today. We appreciate Dr. Ephraim Sarah Schreier for discussing his new book, Psychic Investigators, Anthropology, Modern Spiritualism, and Credible Witnessing in the Late Victorian Age. I'm your host, Nathan Moore, and to keep up to date on all things New Books Network or NBN, please visit the website at newbooksnetwork.com.